Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down with David R. York to talk about the gift of lift. David is an attorney, a CPA, and a managing partner of York Howell and Guyman, named an Inc. 5000 fastest growing company. David works with closely held business owners and ultra high net worth clients in the areas of tax and estate planning. He has authored multiple books, one, Entrusted, Building a Legacy That Lasts, and two, Riveted, 44 Values That Change the World. But today, we are going to be talking about David's newest book, The Gift of Live. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I am so happy to be sitting down with David York. David, thank you so much for joining the show today. How are you doing today? I am doing great. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Uh, see, there are so many things that I talked that I knew I remembered from our pre-podcast call that I'm sure will come up here. But David, you know, you're attorney, you're a CPA, you're an author, The Gift to Lift. Tell me a little bit about who you are, how you came to be. Yeah, you know, I always tell people as an attorney and a CPA, I'm two of the most boring people in the world wrapped into one. Uh, you know, and I'm someone who knows an awful lot about very little. Uh, but when I came into estate planning, I came from a really technical background, being a CPA, I did taxes for years. And I came looking at estate planning as, as the how and the what, right? How do you do estate planning? What is estate planning? And what I came to realize is that those are not the right questions to ask. It's about the why of your wealth and the who uh, around you. And it's so much more about purpose and people than it is about property or profits. And so uh, I've been kind of on this journey of, of uh, rediscovery of what wealth is and impact and all those things. Gosh, how do you think you would have defined wealth like, you know, earlier in your life versus where you are today? Yeah, you know, early on, it was about what's on your balance sheet, right? Show me your assets and I'll tell you what you're worth. And it wasn't too long before I realized that there's really little correlation between that. You know, I see people who live with such meaning and purpose and direction in life. They have such clarity and it has nothing to do with how much or little they have in the bank account. It's all about um, knowing who they are uh, and knowing the impact they want to make in life. And so uh, what I came to realize is people who have a lot of money, they tend to have one thing in common. They're good at making money, right? But that doesn't necessarily tell you that they're happy, content, fulfilled, engaged, any of those kind of things. Right. And I feel like it's something that, I guess, if I speak from my own experience, I think even the initial messages that I received in life were, I remember this, I wanted to join the Peace Corps. And the first thing that, you know, my mom had said to me was like, but that's not going to make you money. And it was the starting of the lessons of, oh my gosh, should I be more concerned about the financial situation that I create? And should that be the purpose of like how, or should that be the motivator of how I choose or what do I choose to do? And I feel like I don't want to say how many years later, but it's many years later. I am on the other side of that, of feeling like you can have the money, but it's not necessarily going to grant you the happiness. And you wrote your book, The Gift of Lift. What inspired you to write your book? Yeah, it was interesting. It was actually an experience I had six years ago with a client of mine. And um, talk about success. 
she, uh, her name's Gail Miller, owner of the Utah Jazz, one of the wealthiest women in, in the United States. And we were sitting down working on a trust that was going to transfer the ownership uh, of the jazz with the goal and intent of keeping it in the state of Utah. Uh, if you've never been to Salt Lake, uh, we have beautiful scenery, but not necessarily a lot to do. And so, you know, the jazz are really important to this community. And so she wanted to make sure it was, it stayed there. And so we were working on this trust and finalizing the details. And during the, during the review of some of the documents, I just happened to ask her, I said, so how will it feel to no longer own the jazz? And she looked at me um, and she said, well, I don't own the jazz. And she went back to reviewing her documents. And I, I was like, mm, you know, that it, it kind of surprised me. And you know, here I am, I'm her attorney and helping her with estate planning. So I'm like, mm. you know, she's a really smart lady, but I was like, um, well, no, you actually do own the jazz. <laughs> and I'll never forget. She stopped what she was doing. And she looked over at me and she said, no, I'm a steward of the jazz. Uh, and it was honestly one of the most powerful experiences of my professional career because I saw somebody who had actually transcended ownership. You know, for most of us, we think the highest thing you could be is an owner, right? I own a piece of property. I own a business. I own uh, a sports team. And yet she she was above that. She had something that was was bigger than ownership. And so it really made me uh, sit back and spend years thinking about, okay, what is a steward and what is the mentality of a steward and what makes them different? Who is this? I mean, I want to get into like, what is a steward? Because I think that this might be something, again, I would put back to myself, like it used to be like, I want the ownership because ownership was equivalent to success, to feeling like you've made it for lack of a better description. Not to say I'm there today, but that was probably some of the earlier lessons that I had. So when you think about who you had in mind for this book, before we kind of dive into understanding it a little bit more, who are the people that you had in mind? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's um, I'm probably going to date myself here when I say this, but it's kind of like playing slug bug. You know, when you start looking for Volkswagens, you know, you start <laughs> seeing them everywhere. And so, uh, you know, the first thing I had to grapple with is, okay, what is a steward? And what I came to realize is that a steward is someone who's fully invested in something bigger than themselves. So at, at the essence, they have two things. They have investment and they have transcendence. In other words, they're all in, but it's not about them. Uh, and as I started to look at that, I started to see examples of people. You know, uh, one example, Nelson Mandela. Um, obviously spent years in, in prison in South Africa trying to end apartheid. What most people don't know, though, is he was actually offered his freedom six times. He had the opportunity to walk out of uh, Robbins Island prison six times. And each time he refused because every time he was offered it freedom, it was conditional. You had to leave the country or you could never speak in public or you could never run for office. They always put conditions. And for him, his transcendent value was freedom. And he knew that you are not truly free unless you're fully free. And so for him, he was willing to continue to pay the cost and make the investment because it was about something that was more than just him. If it had been about him, he would have walked out the front door, uh, but it was about something more. And it's powerful and it's life changing. Doesn't mean it was easy for him, 
Um, you know, I also think of um, Susan B. Anthony. You know, she, um, uh, one of the leaders of the suffrage movement, she actually died 14 years before women got the right to vote. But it was because of her and her efforts, and she was all in, and she was all about equality for women. Uh, but it took her years and years and years. And so you start to see these people who just live fundamentally different lives and the impact that they make because of those two elements of investment and transcendence. I never realized that Nelson Mandela was offered release. Uh, that is, you know, just to think about how purposeful, how intentional and the sacrifice that, you know, that to make, to be able to stand for the cause. That is an incredible example. How do you think, I mean, do you notice any moments that maybe that people start to make that shift or is it more intention or is it life forcing you to that? Yeah. You know, I think it's about a mindset and unfortunately, and, and this is where I kind of saw it coming from an estate planning perspective, because um, what's the opposite of a steward? Well, it's someone who lacks any investment and lacks any transcendence. And, you know, I call those people consumers. Um, and unfortunately, we see consumerism and the effects of consumerism all around us, right? That's why the average American inheritance lasts 18 months. So you think about that. What people build and accumulate over the course of their lifetime is on average spent and consumed by the next generation in 18 months. And why is that? I think by and large, it's because what we say is we're going to give you something that costs you nothing. So there's no investment and there's nothing bigger than yourself about it. And then we're shocked when it's consumed. And you know, I've had a lot of clients who they see that issue or they see that consumer mentality or they're afraid that all their hard work is just going to be dissipated. So they come in and they want to put a lot of restrictions and limitations on how their money can be used and how it can be spent. But the, the opposite of consumerism isn't minimalism. It isn't less. It's about something fundamentally different. And I think that's what we we see in society a lot, right? Is this consumer mentality is I'm not going to invest in anything and there's nothing bigger than myself. And we have a whole lot of really unhappy people as a result. Um, and so, yeah, what I want people to understand is it's not about being a world leader. It's not about being a, uh, you know, a billionaire. It's about having a mindset of being all engaged, uh, but about something more than just you. Yeah. It's greater than you, greater than what you're there to do. And I like your perspective of thinking about it as a consumer approach that, you know, I think we've almost been conditioned to always think, what is in it for me? Why should I care? What should I invest in? Instead of being like, but how could I help? How could I solve? How could I do this? In your book, you describe different types of leaders um, through your perspective. I'm curious, could you tell a little, tell us a little bit more about the types of leaders? Yeah. So then you think, okay, um, how do stewards express themselves in, in leadership? And I think they have a couple of things in common. Uh, first and foremost, and it's kind of what we were talking about uh, earlier, and that is most of us live with what I call an if-then mentality of life, right? If I do this, then someone else will do this. Or if I accomplish this, then I will get this. And it's all, it's very, um, it's driven by expectation. And, and the problem with expectations is you either meet them and at best you're satisfied or you don't meet them and then you're unsatisfied, right? 
steward leaders operate on a different mindset. It's what I call a because therefore, because of my transcendence, what's bigger than me, therefore I will do this. And what's great about a because therefore model is it's always achieved. Uh, If you think about um, I say, okay, if I can grow and sell a business for $10 million, then I'll be happy, right? That's sort of the if then, and we see that in society. But if you say, because I value compassion, therefore, I will foster a child. I will give to the local food bank. I will check on my neighbor who's sick, right? No matter what, a because therefore will achieve uh, its purpose. You will add compassion to the world. And that's your driver, right? And so um, that's, I think, one of the biggest things is that um, uh, stewards are more about direction than destination, right? A steward leader says, these are the values that I have as an individual. These are the values we have as a business. And we're going to advance that. It's about direction. And direction creates pull as opposed to destinations, uh, which is all about either failing or arriving, but then you're done. <laughs> it's, I mean, I like breaking it down like that. The if then the, this is what it is. Either we make it or we don't. If we are successful or if we are unsuccessful, this is what we'll do. Instead of really leading with, I guess the core, the, I love the, because therefore differentiator, because I think that that one's easy, maybe not easy, but from where I sit, Sometimes it's hard to find meaning in work when we live off of the if then, like, okay, we're just working like to, you know, get this job. But I like that therefore, because therefore, or therefore, because like, I feel like it invites everyone into the conversation for how they can actually see themselves as a leader instead of it just being a kind of person that's out there, not really having control, not really maybe feeling like they Let's see. How am I trying to say that? I just feel like it's more enticing. It's more empowering to oh, look yeah. at it in that way. Yeah, it's um, much more. It's much more compelling. I um, in 2019, back when you could leave the country and travel and have fun and do those things, I went with my family. We went to Italy and uh, we got to tour a winery just outside of Verona, uh, and beautiful. It's, but it had been around for it's a 130 year old family business, fifth generation. And uh, we're touring it. We're, I'm touring with uh, uh, the daughter who's running the, the family business now, raising the sixth generation there. And I asked her, I said, what's the secret of a five-generation, 130-year-old you know, family business? And she said, it's one word. You know? And I was like, geez, what is that word? You know, is it uh, family? Is it excellence? Is it wine? Like, what's the secret? And she said, it's passion. But I loved her description. What she said is, it's a beautiful work, but it's also very hard. You have to both look up and see the beauty and look down and do the work. And I thought that was just a perfect example of stewardship because she was a steward of that land. There were four generations before her. She hopes there's four generations after her. So she was a steward, but for her, the beauty was the transcendence. That's, but that beauty led to her engagement and that day-to-day work, right? So she was able to do the work because of the beauty. Why was there the beauty? Because of the work, right? And so they actually work really well together to create that passion that allows them to be around for that long. 
I love that perspective. So if you might be listening as David is talking about, like even looking at what you're doing and how it is this cycle of things that can be fulfilling, that we are going to have, for lack of a better description, like the beautiful parts of our jobs that we love and the parts that we may not like, that the work as she would describe it. But when we can merge those, when we put in that work, we can see that value no matter what chair you sit in or what title you have. So then let's go to the other end of that. I know we're going to dive more in to really talk about what it means to be a steward. What's the opposite of a steward at work? Yeah, it's that consumer, right? It's that person who says, what's in it for me? And they lack that investment uh, and they lack that transcendence. And so unfortunately, it can either lead to, like I said, two, two things. Your expectations are met. But how many of us actually get a bump in happiness when we get exactly what we expect, right? Uh, it doesn't really do much for you. Or your expectations aren't met, which leads to anger and frustration and, and even depression. Um, and, you know, I see this with um, uh, people who own businesses, right? You know, they uh, studies show that is upwards of 70% of people regret selling their business within a year of the sale of their business because they thought it would bring them all of these things, right? Like if I go and I do this and I build my business and I sell it for a bunch of money and put it in my bank, I'll, I'll, then I'll be happy. And the reality is it does not bring that happiness and contentment that they, they thought. And so um, that's the problem with being that if then it's very, quite frankly, it's self-centered and it's very expectation uh, based. And so if we look at that, what that looks like in a workplace, then it might be um, just trying to think of something off the top of my head. Like maybe it's, well, I don't really want to do that because it doesn't serve me. And then, or what does like, well, how do you see that show up for people's work lives or in people's work lives? Yeah. You know, I think it's a couple of things. One is, I think when you can have clarity of purpose in a workplace, you actually draw people who are compelled by that. Right. Uh, You know, and I tell people when you care about everything, you really don't care about anything. Right. And we have to just realize that we have, we are finite beings and we can't care about everything. So what are those few things that really inspire us, uh, guide us, direct us, and make us tick. And so when you can be clear in a business about what your purpose is, you actually can draw other people who are like-minded and you get synergies from that. And the other huge benefit of having clear purpose is it actually makes decisions a lot easier. So um, I worked with a family office that um, they wanted to, they had just sold a a business that had a great name brand. Uh, You'd know the name brand. And uh, they were looking for their next things that they were going to do. So we went through an exercise to say, okay, what do, what do we want this, this company to be known for? And they wanted to be known for three things. They wanted to be known for loyalty. They wanted to be known for integrity. And they wanted to be known for excellence. Now, unfortunately, the acronym was LIE. So let's set that aside. But <laughs> they were like, okay, we didn't think through that. But um, that afternoon, they were going through and they were deciding on what they wanted to do with an investment. And there was an investment that they could make. They've been thinking about it for months. And it was one that they could make some good money on, but it was kind of geographically remote and, and it would take a lot of time and effort. And so they were kind of hemming and hawing. Should we make money? What do we do? And I just asked them, I said, let me ask you this. Can you do this project with excellence? And they said, done. We're not doing the deal. Because 
yeah, we could make money, but we can't do it with the excellence that we want to be known for and that thing that's bigger than us. And so because we can't do it with excellence, we're not going to do it. And so for them, it turned months of decision making into a two minute decision uh, because they had that clarity of that thing that's bigger than them. And, and it helped them drive what they decided to, how they decided to deploy their resources. I feel like think about how much stress you could save humanity if you help them get clear on, you know, even three things that will just get that around your passion and purpose. Just, gosh, I'm thinking about decisions that I've waffled on that if I was actually started with that first, how I could have saved myself stress or even, I mean, what my my husband would say too, is that sometimes I say yes to a lot of things because I feel bad. Not yeah. because it's what I want to do, but it's because I feel in some way that someone, you know, might be upset or not as happy. And then I feel like that, how that shows itself is overscheduled, not doing things with excellence in the way that I would want to, which had I actually started with that, you know, purpose that would have been different. Crosshelm is a global organization dedicated to developing effective leaders. Companies all over the world have seen their managers transformed into leaders through our award-winning and accredited leadership development programs. Our signature BPM program provides interactive management training with a results-oriented curriculum and prime networking opportunities. If you're interested in learning more about our flagship program and developing your managers into leaders, please visit our website to find a leadership trainer near you. Or maybe you yourself have always wanted to train and develop others. Crestcom is a global franchise with ownership opportunities available throughout the world. If you have ever thought about being your own boss, owning your own business, and leveraging your leadership experience to impact businesses and leaders in your community, Crestcom may be the right fit for you. We're looking for professional executives who are looking for a change and want to make a difference in people's lives. Learn more about our franchise opportunity on the Own a Franchise page of our website at crestcom.com. Let's think about the starting point. Where do you start? So if someone's picking up your book and they're thinking, how can I develop, you know, how can I develop into a better steward? How can I truly practice this? Where is the place that you would recommend that they start? Yeah, you know, it's really good because when you're talking about that thing that's bigger than yourself, Inherently, that's a really deep and personal question. And I think you you hit the head on the nail on the head. And that is for some of us, the problem isn't about caring. Uh, it's about caring about too much, right? Like the world gets so overwhelming and there's so many things. And so it's really just about understanding that core of who you are. And the only way I think you can do that is through questions and stories. You know, I, I like to say it this way. Um Knowledge and information inform, but questions and stories transform, you know, and I think one of the knee jerk problems we have in society today is we live in the information age, right? So what we think we lack is information. We're like, oh, if I just had all the right information, if I had, if I just had the podcast that told me the one thing I need to know, I can use that information. Uh, but the reality is I think we need transformation and transformation comes from sitting with questions. So, you know, um, in the book, I actually, I've got like 50 questions and it's, they're just things for you to sit down and ponder. Like, for example, so I'll, I'll ask you, what is the greatest compliment that you could, you could receive? You know, I think 
The greatest compliment I myself could receive is that I have in some way inspired someone to see their life in a different way that they are. Yeah. That it's, and that one is probably that one's easy. Yeah. I think it would be along that of like feeling like they have the confidence and that they feel good enough to do something. Yeah. And what I love about that one is it gives you a good insight into what your, what your core values are, right? Like what, what do you value? Who are you? And then what I love about, and, and this is a critical element of stewardship. It's about other people. You know, it's ultimately stewards about other people. And they realize that, um, that others perspective is actually what brings value. And so it's really just a matter of, of that. What, and I mentioned it earlier, it, 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 you described it, but you know, if you could be known for three words, what are they? You know, what three words do you want to be described as? These are just questions that as you ask yourself and you wrestle with and you ask other people, you start to get that clarity. And then that clarity actually becomes a great rubric for you to go through and decide what to do in life. So as life tosses you all these different things, you can look through that perspective of what is bigger than you that you can figure out how you are going to invest in it. What if, like, what's the opposite in the, you know, if I think about what I just gave and is there, is there such a thing as being too much of a steward? Yeah, no, the great thing to me is, um, you know, it's funny. One of the buzzwords you hear in in the world today is balance, right? Like, oh, we need to have balance, work-life balance, all, all of that. And to me, balance is about more or less. Um, but I actually think we shouldn't seek balance. We should seek counterbalance and counterbalance comes when you, uh, actually balance two things against each other to give more strength to the other. And so, um, think about an elevator, an elevator works based on counterbalances. It actually doesn't take a lot of energy because all it takes is a little bit of effort on one side and you've got the weight of the other working together. So, um, you know, it's kind of like um, uh, salty and sweet together, right? How how good is salted caramel ice cream, right? It's not about, oh, it need to be more sweet or less sweet. It's about adding that salt that brings something different. Um, and so um, what I tell clients or what I tell people is you get far more power when you combine that transcendence and that investment together. So um, it's not about titrating life up or down. I need to work more. I need to work less. No, it needs to be about why do you work? And that why will actually lead to that, that deeper engagement. But because it's bigger than you, it actually takes some of the pressure off because it's not something that you can achieve. It's something that you can express. It's not an end destination. No. I feel like there there has to be... I don't know if someone listening to this podcast, hopefully feeling like I now have freedom in some capacity, freedom to understand like the purpose, but to let go of what I feel. And maybe this is myself projecting, like there's often this vision of perfection that is supposed to hit everything. And I think that can be really restrictive. It can challenge the way that I, how I might look at success, how resilient I might be, whether or not I pursue it or I give up in general. And I like that it's, you know, it's the journey. It's, it's the journey. It's what you're doing in the middle. It's not, I think too often we get caught up in the, in the outcomes, as you're saying, like we get so caught up in what does success look like or how will I know when I've made it? 
<laughs> yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. And then I think the other thing you hit on, which is huge is this problem of perfectionism, right? And there's actually all these studies out there that show that the levels of perfectionism are going up. Like the expectations we have on ourselves, the expectations we have on others just keep going up and up. And there's a guy named Barry Schwartz, I think. And he came up with this term called satisficing. And basically it's about getting to the point of being satisfied with good and achieving an expression of what you value as opposed to, well, it's got to be perfect or I can't do it at all. Right. So we just create these binaries of it's got to be absolutely perfect or I'm not interested as opposed to um, taking a step back and realizing, you know what, I can do a good job on this. Uh, and I, I may not be a perfect friend. I can be a good friend. I may not have the perfect advice, but I can beef with someone, right? And just helping to, to again, take some of that pressure off because it's not about achieving, it's about advancing. Well, and it's, that's, that achievement is just rooted in that judgment. And oh, I yeah. don't know, well, you know, like I remember in my 20s when, you know, I just can remember the first time that I had a boss tell me like, Jen, it's about living in the gray. Yeah. But I think that was the hardest leadership lesson to really understand because up until that point, life was a destination. There was enough judgment to tell me if what you're doing is right or what you're wrong, which then adds into that level of perfectionist thinking of like, I must do this as a right way. Like, how do you even begin to think in the gray? Like if you were like, what are some of the questions that I'm not even, this is kind of putting you on a spot and maybe more conceptual way, but like, how did you start to learn to live in the gray of like good enough? Or like, it doesn't have to be perfect. Like, I don't know if you had any tips that you use because I still find that's hard. It's hard to know that we're supposed to live in the gray, but then still assess ourselves as either winning or losing. And so I don't know if you have any tips for how you're able to come back and be like, let's refocus. Or is that always coming back to the why and the purpose and the passion? Or am I stacking way too many questions into this podcast format right now to even answer? It's probably a mix of all. No, I think it, I, I think it's great. And I think, um, first of all, when I figure it out, I'll let you know, right. We're all on a, on a journey. Um, but, um, I, I think one of the issues that we have again, is just such a lack of self-awareness. Um, and I think we struggle so much. They, they did a study a couple of years ago and they were looking for like the key characteristics of leaders in businesses. Like what, what is the key characteristic of, of highly successful businesses? And um, they were like, we think we found it because we were not looking for this. But they said the number one characteristic of successful leaders is self-awareness. They, they knew who they were they knew their strengths, they knew their weaknesses. And again, counterintuitively, it takes a lot of the pressure off when you can understand fully who you are and you know the gaps that you need and the people to surround yourself with. And it actually brings a huge sense of um, uh, humility uh, when you can actually be self-aware. And humility is a great antidote to pressure and pride and all those things. Um, it is kind of funny. Uh, I did see a breakdown the other day between male leaders and self-awareness and female leaders. And so they, they did a study and it was like 4% of male leaders were self-aware and 19% of female leaders were self-aware. So depending on how you can look at it, you're like, oh, women are five times more self-aware than men. Or you can say, no, 80% plus 
aren't self-aware either. Right. So, but I do think it's interesting because in general, you do find women who are more relational. Uh, They, they tend to ask a lot of questions and tend to just understand a bit more of who they are. But I think that's the key is understanding that self-awareness and who you are. I think it makes you a better leader. It makes you a more mellow leader. Uh, and I think it makes you ultimately far more impactful. I love, I love that stat that you just gave to even think, yeah, 80% of people actually aren't as self-aware is what they probably think they are. Because I bet most of those leaders probably, I think if you ask, if I ask that question to a class at Crosscom, I'm sure the majority of people would say like, I'm pretty self-aware. Yeah, in fact, one of the markers of a lack of self-awareness is if you think you're self-aware. Like, <laughs> you know, like they did a they did another study. I saw like if you if you think you can multitask, you actually can't. They said it's actually the people who don't think they can that actually can't because it's such a small percentage. But honestly, like a truly self-aware person is going to be open to maybe there's something I don't know about myself. Uh, so yeah, if you if you're certain you're self-aware, it's probably an indicator that you're not. I feel, oh my gosh, I'm just laughing because I've definitely heard, you, you know, I've seen the example in leadership where talking to a leader and they would be the self-described, like, I'm a people person. Yeah. And then you watch them and you're like, but you are the opposite of a people person. I'm not sure if you can see that about yourself, but I don't know. Or did someone tell you that and not maybe give you that feedback throughout the way? Because you do see that. Like, I've absolutely heard that's not even, I've heard that a few times of someone saying like, I'm a total people person. And in my head, I'm like, but I don't think you realize like how your words are actually impacting all these people. And they may not describe you with that language. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. When I was a kid, my mom told me once that I was, I was patient. I'm like such a patient person because I like to, to, I was going, I went fishing and I could spend hours doing that. She's like, you're so patient. You're spe-. I grew up thinking I was patient. It was not until like 10 years ago, I realized I am so impatient. I'm like the world's most impatient person. Uh, But someone told me that and I believed it. The only reason I was patient, I liked fishing. I was impatient getting there. I was impatient heading home. I just happened to like that. And so I agree with you. I think sometimes we get these things, both positive and negative in our head that are not truly who we are. Uh, And it takes some of that internal work, like even just like, like, what does a counselor do? At the end of the day, all they're doing is asking your questions because you have the answers. You just need to be asking the questions to actually get to who you are. Oh my gosh. It's, I love that it's, it really is questioning yourself in a kind way, in a curious way, or I guess what advice would you have in terms of how they should be asking these questions? Because I think any, like, do you have any pitfalls that they should watch out for? Because I think, again, we might just be starting with like, well, what does, you know, hitting the millionaire circle look like for me, this destination? I think it might be easy to even ask yourself leading questions. So I don't know if you have any pitfalls that you would maybe avoid or any guidance around like questions of open-ended, I'm guess as, as the first one of like open-ended, but how do you answer them? Do you write them down? Do you just reflect and meditate on them? What's yeah. The yeah. I think, really I, I think it that? really is. I think it's a matter of just, and the big thing too, I think is avoiding the posing, right? Like we're all supposed to give answers a certain way. And I think the key is just to ask yourself um, uh, the questions and then give yourself honest answers. Not like, what are you supposed to say? Or, 
not or what other people think, but but honestly, what do you think? Um, I, I really think that's the key, but it does take time and it does take effort. Yeah, it's well, and it's hard. I think that for some, depending on where you are in your life and what's going on when you're asking yourselves these questions, your answers might lead to things that require some heavy lifting or some different choices and changes that I'm sure can elicit all of the fear or emotions or feelings of, well, if I go back to like what really matters to me, you know, and it's having that imprint or I forget the exact question that you had phrased, like, and then you find out, oh my gosh, is this where, is this where the midlife crisis happens, David? Is that, the, yeah, is that when we start think, answering the question is too late in life? And then we're, go, we go into panic mode and buy the sports car. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, one of the nice things about the mirage and not getting there is it still drives you forward. Cause you think once I, you know, if I get there, then I'll be happy. And I see that with, with so many people. Uh, and I remember, I mean, geez, even when my, my wife and I got married, I'm like, okay, if we could save up a thousand dollars, then I'll feel completely financially secure, right? Like you're living paycheck to paycheck and you've got nothing. And then you get that. And then it's like, oh, if we could get just a little bigger house, if we could just have this or that. And you finally hit enough of those destinations and they don't actually move the needle in life. I think that's what midlife crisis is, is honestly, when you've checked off enough boxes that were supposed to make you content and happy and they didn't, then you're like, then you start to realize, well, maybe the next five boxes I'm working for aren't going to do that for me either. Yeah. So maybe it's not about checking boxes. Yeah, it's about asking deeper questions. Well, and understanding, I mean, I'm not sure. What do you see with, with how, like writing this book? Like, I don't know. Do you notice those times on? Is it, do you ask the questions when we're going into that new promotion or going into a new field or becoming parent? Or is any time the right time to ask the questions of yourself? Yeah, I think every time is good. And it actually is good to um, ask your, to continually ask yourself because the reality is we're affected by life experiences, uh, by good things and bad things and struggles and trials and difficulties. And actually you see so much growth. I see so many people who have gone through difficulties in life uh, and you talk to them about it afterwards, none of them would give would go back and not have that struggle or trial. They don't necessarily want to go through another one, right? But it's in those times of struggle and pain and difficulty where we actually get to an understanding of who we are because a lot of stuff gets stripped away. And so I do think it's good to re-ask yourself because who I am and what I value and what I believe has changed over time. And that's not a bad thing. Um, and so I do think constant that self-reflection is really valuable. So once you get those answers, like what, what is it? Like, how do you actually transcend? Like, is that as a result of small steps? Is it, I don't know if you have any tips and techniques on like, you know, once you realize what that purpose is, how can you live in alignment with it? I guess yeah, that's, that's the, the transcendence. Exactly. Yeah. That's the right question is once I understand that thing that is bigger than me, then how am I going to invest in that? And, and everybody has three things they can invest. You can invest your time. You can invest your talent. You can invest your treasure, right? You know, you can invest and, and your time is really the most precious commodity. That's the interesting thing I've, I noticed is I don't care how much resource, financial resources you have. We all have the same amount of time. And that becomes the most precious to people when they have uh, extra financial resources. But 
but where am I going to invest those things in that thing that's that's bigger than myself? So actually, I find the investment side is actually easier once you understand the the destiny or the direction you want to head. So if I was so if I was thinking about how can I take it because I I love your book is going to drop on June six. We want people to get the gift of lift. You know, we rise by lifting others. How can we become that steward? first starts with asking you the questions, you know, and then thinking based on those answers, where are you going to invest your time, your talent, or I love that your treasure. I'm like, do I have enough treasures to invest myself? I don't know. When you say treasure, it makes me feel like I need to have a, a, a big chest with a lot of gold coins in it. <laughs> and I don't know if I have that, you know, but I'm teasing, but really thinking, so that's the investment of then going through and thinking, how do I want to invest my time, talent, or treasure? What are other tips that you have for people as they're really embarking on this life of stewardship? Yeah, I, again, I do think it's important to realize because I, I, you know, I, I, to me, we think money is a lead indicator of investment, right? Like the more money you have, the more investment you can make, the more impact. I, I find oftentimes money is a lag indicator. It, it comes after your investment of time and hard work, you know. I cannot tell you how many clients I work with um, that um, they, they come from absolutely nothing and they have that high level of cost. But the reality is that cost is the only thing that actually brings value. Um, and when we, we try to bypass cost or pain or work, we actually end up undermining value. Uh, and um, so, and, and, and honestly, I just think it's a cop-out to say, well, I don't have enough money, so I can't make a difference in the world. I mean, go back to the people in your life that made the biggest impact in your life. You think about those people. I think about an eighth grade math teacher who believed in me. I, I don't think she had a lot of money. She made a lasting impact in my life because she actually believed in me. And it was one of the first teachers who ever did, right? So um, I... I think we just need to reframe what impact looks like. And it really is just a matter of taking your time and investing your talents. And, and most people who have financial resources, it's because they invested those first two things. Oh my gosh, David, I've loved our conversation because I feel like it's, it's soul filling when we really think about our purpose, which is often the legacy that we leave that we, I think that's the last question that we actually think about is like, did I do it right? I love your, approach and really thinking, how do you want to show up today? Like, how do you want to live your life? Not the destination you're going to, because we make a lot of assumptions. I mean, you see it from the perspective as an estate planner. I maybe watched it in terms of watching both of my parents, everything they worked for be gone within a matter of years. And then you really, that it's through those situations that I think they force those questions, but everyone that's listening to this has the opportunity to ask yourselves those questions now, instead of waiting for that situation where you might be forced into it. This is your opportunity to think about what your life can look like. What benefits have you seen? Because in closing, I want to, I want to sell it. Like, why do people need to hear this right now? If they're going through blank, like, why do they need to hear this message right now? Yeah, because ultimately, um, the most content, the most impactful people are the ones who seek meaning in life and not happiness. Happiness is just such a fleeting, temporary thing. And honestly, I think a lot of us come to realize that, you know, it's just the it's the hit of adrenaline that doesn't last. Um, but meaning 
comes from being deeply engaged and having other people in, involved. Uh, and so I think that, you know, maybe that's a question you need to ask yourself is, am I living life for happiness or am I living it for meaning? Because it's going to look very different. Oh my gosh. I love that as a closing question. Are you living your life right now for happiness or are you living your life for meaning? David, how can people get in touch with you? Your book drops June 6. Where can they purchase it? Tell us all the details. Yeah, it's on all the natural resources, you know, Amazon, uh, Kindle, uh, Barnes and Noble. We're working on a, uh, audio version for those like me who like to listen to books, but then you can also go to davidryork.com. I've got a Ted talk on there about wealth and looking at wealth differently, uh, and some other resources as well. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you so much for just your perspective. And I hope that the questions that you posed today brought some people to powerful answers for how they can live their life with more meaning. Thank you so much for being on the show, David. Oh, anytime. Love talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with David and that you are leaving, feeling inspired, wanting to ask yourself some questions so you can find more meaning. If you want to pick up your copy of The Gift of Live, just remember it drops on June 6th, but you can actually get special pre-launch pricing for Kindle now. And if you want to connect more with Brian, find more resources that he has available or just check in, see how you can book him for speaking, head on over to davidryork.com. And finally, check out his tech talk. You go to ted.com there, you can Google David York and you can find his tech talk all on building wealth.